The Hard Shoulder with Nissan. Number one for petrol in Ireland. Number one for electric. Nissan. Innovation that excites. This is News Talk. Well, welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. And on a Friday, we have the final furlong for you, where we assemble the good and the great. Well, this week, we're, you know, it's the new year. Things are a little bit difficult. Mairead Lavery, journalist with Irish Country Living. Of course, the, the, the heartbeat of the Farmer's Journal. Terry Prawn, chairperson of the Communications Clinic. Spin Queen extraordinaire. And Bill Hughes, the magnet that is the producer of Mind the Gap films. You're all most welcome. Let's start with this lady. Two things. Uh, firstly, could we get over feeling sorry for Theresa May? Um, never feel sorry for her? Do you never feel sorry for her? No, I don't feel sorry for her. She's the woman who for many, many years has led uh, the hostile environment uh, for migrants in this country, which resulted in the Windrush generation. It's a disgrace. She's the person who created her very specific red lines on immigration in the ECJ, which have created the negotiation mess that we're in. She triggered Article 50 when she had no plan. And as to criticising the EU on this, there are 27 other countries in the EU. They have been completely united on this. We do not even have a cabinet that can unite. And it is ridiculous for us, with our hopeless government, who cannot get it together, to actually work out what the will of the people is today, in 2019, to blame the EU and to go around feeling sorry for Theresa May. I'm sorry. I, I, I happened to be actually watching that on television last night, BBC, Question Time from London, and that was someone who's clearly not a fan of Theresa May. A lot of people I meet in the street and so on, don't break breaks, they feel sorry, Bill, for Theresa May. Do you? Not remotely. Not remotely. Apart from anything else, she's a politician. She's put herself in this position. She went up for public office. She was voted into it and she has climbed on the back of many backs up the ranks until she became prime minister. And uh, to a a party that at the time, if we all remember, didn't want her, a party that certainly didn't want her as leader because the choice and it was all as a result of the fallout of Brexit. So here we are now uh, with Theresa May running around like a demented owl one trying to find a deal that's going to, in some way, be a miraculous panacea to what is actually happening. And it's denial, denial, denial. She's like a character from a a Beckett play. She hasn't a bloody clue. Well, I I, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, uh, you could say the Brits haven't a clue. You could say the situation they're in is an identity crisis. It's a meltdown and all et al on, on the British bashing. But I think people feel that in terms of Theresa May trying to prevail on people to say you cannot have the utopian Brexit that you thought you could have or to try and find a middle way and look I've been out there and this is the best deal I can get people do do feel Mairead Lowry that that, you know that they have an ounce of sympathy for her on a human level no? Well yes on a human level I I do have sympathy for her Um, she keeps using the phrase don't let the perfect defeat the good And, and there's a sense to that um, where I fall out with her completely and where I think we would have had a completely different two years on Brexit was when she called the snap general election in, was it June 2017? She had 330 Conservative MEPs at that stage. She went down to 317. She lost those, what, 
13 seats. That would she have, lost her majority, yeah. She lost her majority. It was 13 seats. DUP had 10. She put the DUP into the riding seat and she has been whipped by them ever since. And there wouldn't have been a squeak out of the DUP if she'd kept her 13-seat majority. Um, and I think we've had a completely different Brexit debate simply because of that snap general election. She called it wrong, she got caught on it and she's been paying the price ever since. And 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 any sympathy for where she finds herself now, which is between a rock and a hard a place of no hard. deal, a nowhere. referendum, a yeah, general election. But, but I mean, you know, where's her opposition is coming from within her own Conservative Party? I well, it's mean, coming Mr. everywhere. Well, Mr. Corbyn is, I mean, you know, he, he's a complete and utter disgrace. You know, I think there's a there's a um, a cartoon in the paper. I don't like the EU, and then on the other side of his face, I don't like Britain too much either. Um, <laughs> and it certainly comes across like that. You know, if you had um, a proper uh, um, opposition on this, making very constructive suggestions, and y- y- you know, there's there's no well, they're looking at the main chance, which they're is looking to at the main chance. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the young people were one of Corbyn's biggest. Uh, Backers or the biggest backing group, mm-hmm. and you know the whole Erasmus program, opportunity to travel, opportunity to work abroad. If there's a, a no Brexit deal and Britain crashes out, you know there's going to be such anger and such, um, you know, just resentment, v- yeah. resentment, and 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 young people are going to carry that, and okay. they're going to go after Corbyn with it. Okay, Terry Prone. Well, if she rocked onto your couch, uh, the aforesaid Teresa, what would you advise her? Oh, I would have advised her two years ago to get the hell out. But then I tend to be not political in my advice to people. I tend to look at things like human dignity and effort and possibilities. And there were none of them (laughs) uh, going to be available to her. You see, the thing is that we are great at admiring persistence in politicians even, as long as the persistence pays off in success historically. Um, We don't tend to admire persistence in people who are not successful. And she is demonstrating all of the persistence of a Churchill, if you like, but she is in a quite different situation where she is working within not just chaos within her own party, but chaos within the entire parliament. If you look at somebody like Boris Johnson and the the reaction to his appearance yesterday in in Dublin, um, you're saying, hang on a second, this is one of the people who has pulled several rugs out from under her. Does anybody really think that he could do better? And how did we get to this situation? And why is she expending so much energy to achieve what doesn't seem to be possible to A hundred seat defeat is what they're talking about now. She has made mistake after mistake, like the thing of the election. But you have to go back to the Voltaire thing of, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I would disagree with almost everything that Theresa May stands for, but I would have to admire the fact that she works so hard to achieve the unachievable, and and I, I memorably, you said something which has stuck in my in my mind ever since. You said that Brexit would be like Y two K. It would be a thing of nothing at the end of the day. You said it, and I, 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 if I had a chair to fall off, if I would have, but I collapsed <laughs> on my one knee down to two. Do you still hold that view? Absolutely not. I think that uh, Brexit is going to be 
an international disaster it's going to be an EU disaster because the fact is that there's even a knock-on logic that says well if you lost Britain then there must be something wrong with the central entity Mm. and that is not true really but it kind of destabilises the EU Mm. it destabilises it gives us an enormous economic, moral border, every kind of problem. So, Ivan, I'm here to tell you, whoever said that about Y2K, no, no, I, I kept so it, I kept wrong! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill, uh, I honestly believe, you know, a deal will be done. Because, you know, a trade agreement between both sides is in their self-interest and everyone acts in their own self-interest. Yeah, but I think whatever, what the, the quality of the deal has now evaporated. There is no quality deal left. There's no uh, there's no dignity in mm-hmm. anything that's going to happen. There's just no real economic boon to anybody. But I also think that it has given and set fire to those people in some of the EU countries who want out. And they want out because they realise they owe the EU too much and the best way to not pay back is to get out and that's Italy and Greece. But, but there, there's also a kind of a bigger movement towards being pro-Europe now because people are seeing the impact of what's happened in the UK. I, I don't know. I, I think at the moment Parliament in the UK looks as if it's trying to regain control. And may do, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you have had the two amendments or two out of three, I think, amendments this week where in the first case um, she has, Theresa May has to come back in three days with her option B plan now you know if she's defeated on next Tuesday I don't know whether the vote will go ahead next Tuesday because she's kind of you know well, there, there has to be to, what's yeah. what's going to be the implication of that vote going against right. her is that is it a general election or is it a, a, I, a if, if you're driving home from a busy week at work and you're fatigued with Brexit uh, my panel of Mairead Lavery Terry Prone and Bill Hughes will be uh, biting off other subjects like should we have a national theatre at all? Don't you know this crowd? Um, but let's go to something lighter that's happening tomorrow. It's Kiss a Ginger Day. Uh, on Saturday, Phoenix Park, 1 to 3 p.m., organisers of the day are hoping that redheads in their thousands will turn out for these celebrations of Kiss a Ginger Day. Many famous redheads, Nicole Kidman, Maureen O'Hara, old Jessica Rabbit, all the ones you like, Bill. Catherine Tate. Yes. And Catherine Tate's famous sketch on the gingers going into uh, protective custody because they were so being bashed by people like you outside. And would you kiss a ginger? I'd kiss a ginger, yeah. Have you kissed a ginger? I have kissed many gingers and it's quite funny. The The reaction? No, the the marble body and the... uh, I've now said too much. Yes, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> stop digging uh, rapidly. Oh, uh, Mairead, you have, you, you're a redhead, are you? Uh, uh, kind Auburn? of, but married a redhead as well and produced a couple yeah. of redheads. Yeah. So I'm with redhead granddaughter Like you have also. a kind of Rita from Coronation Street. You reckon, It's kind of yeah, regal. It's yeah, kind of, yeah, 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 top yeah, end. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so, so are you, uh, did, were you put upon over the years? As a, no, never, absolutely, and uh, never. Um, now, my 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 hair—I don't know what kind of color you call it at the moment—but it's out of a bottle. Yeah. So um, it doesn't really reflect the real, the real thing. Yeah. There's yeah. a bit of copper in it. Yeah. But um, I was doing a bit of research, and um, I got some facts on redheads, which I thought were very interested. Do you know um, Scotland has the most of them, thirteen percent. Ireland know. next, but there's a region in Russia, a Kazan. I don't know where it must be over around the Arctic or something where there's also 10% of redheads. And I have never, ever, ever associated Russians with having red hair. But are they obnoxious, really? 
No, they're the not. Russians they're great. The they're, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, my daughter has lovely auburn hair. And um, I remember we were on holidays with her one year and it was a part of the world where there weren't many redheads. And people kept taking photographs of her. And, you know, she was there having to do selfies with them because uh, they hadn't seen this kind of red hair. And my son worked out in Saudi Arabia. And uh, again, he, you know, he's a tall guy with this big head, this strawberry blonde red hair. And... Um, he, he would always be stopped to get a photograph. And when he went to the barbers, they, they weren't quite sure what to do with the hair because, you know, they'd never dealt with that colour, seemingly, or that particular barber mm-hmm. hadn't. But what, you know, when you, if you wash redheads' hair, it goes much darker. And this was kind of a fascinating point as well. So, um, yeah. Mm. The, I, I find carrot tops like Prince Harry objectionable myself. I, I just don't do anything for me, Terry. What do you think? I think it's very fortunate in that uh, respect that <laughs> years ago I went platinum because, believe it or not, Ivan, I am a redhead by Are nature. You? Now, the problem is that You're I serious? feel so disconnected in this conversation. Uh, my jaw's First of gaping. all, I've never seen, I don't know who Rita is from Coronation yeah. Street, and I can't think straight after Bill Hughes's thing about marble bodies. Yes. Um, however, I Are think you really a red? I am. Um, I had spectacular... Was your mother a red? Orbert. No, I was the exception in all respects to my family. It led what to a lot admission. of popularity. So you got rid of your red hair? Yes, I did. I did you ever... No, did you find you were discriminated against because of it? No, I was absolutely grand. But then I decided I would put blonde highlights. And the problem is I was reading a very good book at the time and half an hour later I suddenly realised, oh, God almighty. And um, I went into the sitting room and said to my husband... What do I look like? And he he looked up and said, fair-mindedly, an aging Donald Duck. <laughs> and Poor I had Tom. turned myself completely yellow. Such and a withering all I could insult. Do <laughs> was go further and go white. And at this stage, I don't know how much of me is genuine white and how much of me is. And is it true that, that the redheads have a more fiery disposition and a temper? In, in, in your theory, case, obviously, it, yes. Oh, well, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But the one thing that I would object to very strenuously is any kind of forced kissing. kissing. Yes. I actually fired a client many years ago because he had spent a lot of time out in Europe. And he had developed this two-cheek kissing lock. And I eventually said to somebody in the company, you take him over. I just cannot stand that every time we meet him, he he assumes it is just awful. And the notion that people would line up in Phoenix Park to be kissed is much better that they go up and save a deer. Okay, well, I'm, I'm heading up there. All right, well, we'll have another round <laughs> have from a Terry. Good time Not with the marble body, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a break. Uh, uh, Terry is going to tell us stories about uh, the thing that gets in her goat now is not redheads, but luggage. But let's catch up now with what's been happening nationally and internationally. Eamon Torsney is here with the news. Welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. We're with you right up until 7 o'clock when we'll have Off the Ball on the station. But for the moment, we're going to be entertained, nay, informed by my final furlong panellist, Mairead Lavery, editor of the Country Living section of the Farmer's Journal, Terry Prone, chairperson of the Communications Clinic, and Bill Hughes, producer at Mind the Gap Films. And Terry, Martin Bell... Mm. To us known as the man in the white suit. And he's been in war-torn, stressful situations, but nothing compares to his recent experience in uh, Gatwick, where he fell over a, soup, a suitcase. Explain what happened to well, poor Martin. this is a man who's been in war zones, who has ex- experienced danger. And what happened in this instance was caused 
just by a suitcase. And it wasn't even that somebody caused him to have an accident. He simply fell over this suitcase and face-planted with such force that the surgeon who worked on him said that, A, she had never seen injuries like it. I mean, his eye sockets were fractured, his cheekbones were fractured, his jaw was fractured. Horrendous. Just everything. It was ghastly. But she said that it was the sort of injury that you would expect from a head-on car crash. And I was looking at this and first of all, it's slightly funny that somebody who has been through all of these trials would end up falling over a suitcase. But I suspect that the statistics are not properly kept about uh, luggage because I, I have seen a fair number of accidents with luggage. Particularly, do you know the way toddlers these days are given their own wheelie things? Mm. And because the toddler is low to the ground and because the wheelie thing is low to the ground, nobody notices that there is a metal thing between the toddler and the wheelie. And I have seen countless people fall over that, that metal thing. But I do have have an obsession with luggage. I was in the States until two days ago and in every airport I was watching people with the kind of fixity that you'd expect of a drug detecting dog. I mean I didn't go over and sniff them but other than that I was watching them ferociously because I have this dream that someday I will find the perfect luggage. I I keep thinking I have it and then realising I haven't. I bought this wonderful light briefcase on wheels last year and then I realised it had a single sticky up bit. I know that sounds ambiguous but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. As opposed to a joint sticky up bit. Bill is the only one who's confused (laughs) about that. (laughs) If you have a single sticky up bit (laughs) you can't stick any other case on top because it warbles back and forth. Sorry, what upsets you? The people pushing these stroller things uh, on, on wheels or or, or the design of them or the luggage themselves? Two things. The design, first of all, everybody should have luggage that has spin wheels okay. so that the luggage sits up okay. straight and that you move along and you see it with somebody. And secondly, people who don't pay attention to what they're doing as they drag them along. The other thing is that uh, parents bring a great many, too many, of these stroller things okay. when they should put their toddlers up on top of the so, wheelie I was going to say the wheelie bins, the yeah. wheelie luggage, and carry them that so, way. So, Mairead, are you turning into a grumpy old woman as well? <laughs> I don't travel as much <laughs> as Terry. Uh, no, no. You don't have no. an obsession with luggage? No, no, I don't. Absolutely don't. I have the same What would you use? Would, would you use... Uh, uh, no, well, I think the... Um, the the, 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 the wheels are handy. Yeah, they're though. very oh, handy. Yeah. And especially when you especially can load something else on, you know, the part you push That's with. That's right. If you can load another bag up on top of that. Where I would agree with Terry, though, is that the two-year-olds with the suitcases. Yeah. I mean, really and truly, they're only taking up space. Um, and, and they're a pure, stuff, nu- really. they're a pure yes. nuisance. I know from the point of view of parents... It might might keep the kids amused, but um, yeah, they, they are a menace around the place. I've seen them. Um, you know the way you can't uh, you can't say a word to kids anymore. I I was in one a queue for passport control, and these two little ones kind of decided to sit down and move no further. So everybody had to wait until the parents negotiated the two to stand up and move along. Spoiled there was brats. no such thing as kind of taking them up under their oxen and hauling them off. Oh, so you we, we applying your foot? <laughs> oh, absolutely. The foot should have been directed yeah, so, uh, at their posteriors. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, that I, was that what happened. I think the panel might be delighted to hear. Because your, your feet rarely touch the ground. You're in the air a lot. Listen, Go on. The, this week in Las Vegas, they were showing all the latest electronic 
and intelligent developments. And one of the things they've launched is luggage that walks beside you. Luggage that is electronically controlled by a little thing you wear on your wrist and the luggage follows you and the luggage follows you around and it beep, beep, beeps if somebody else touches it or tries to steal it from you. The luggage is completely autonomous and it comes along. You don't have to but drag only, only or pull Hollywood anything. film producers could afford something 700, like that. 700 is the opening price for a fully functional case. It's fantastic if it's It's another. like these driverless cars. They behold dangerous. Well, the funniest thing about our man who fell over his case in the UK what you Before failed, failed to say do you know what it was full of books his own books he'd just been on a tour trying to sell his books so it was really heavy. and they were spare copies that hadn't right. sold Aww. so it was a very heavy bag full yeah. of his own books okay so he tripped over his own importance okay. but probably, I don't well, know. now that we've dealt with the luggage footage we'll, uh, <laughs> the, the, the luggage fetish I should say let's move on to a serious thing because I feel very strongly that we don't need a national theatre we've had this to do during the week uh, that some hundreds of actors and designers and producers have been cribbing and complaining that the premium pay, the length of run, visiting touring groups and so on, are all depriving the good and the great of the arts of their money. And I'm saying to myself, well, what about the old gaiety and the gate? Why do we need a national theatre at all at all? I'm looking at you so hard to see, are you really taking the piss out of us by saying what you've just said? Or do you really believe Well, let's balance it by listening to George from Glenrow, Alan Stanford, because he's on your side of this fence. The objection that people have to theatre, you know, why have a national theatre? Why should be subsidised theatre? Let's get rid of all that subsidy of theatre. We don't need it. Well, if you're going to say that, then let's get rid of the art galleries and let's get rid of the concert halls. You do need it, because whether or not every single person in the nation avails of that, it is a representation of what the nation is. Theatre is about us. Theatre is fine. Just don't ask uh, hard-pressed taxpayers to pay for it. Oh. So what are they supposed to pay for? The racing health board? And health the and racing housing board, and something like that. Yes, yeah, money wasted um, in racing too. Yeah. Part of our national identity uh, oh, is delivered to us by our writers and particularly by our playwrights. And they tell us who we are through the medium of theatre. And people like the great Brian Friel through Dancing at Lunasa, through translations, people like uh, in his day Sean O'Casey was able to tackle what uh, the 1916 uh, revolution had meant, the plough and the stars. It came through a national theatre. A national theatre gives us our voice. They're not necessarily, in their first outing, commercially viable projects. So they need to come through a national theatre where they are nursed along so that a perfect piece of art can arrive on the stage and can entertain us then for generations. It is the best investment in telling us who we are. Writers writing a novel, they're doing it at home in their living room and they're getting or in their study and they're delivering their manuscript. Playwrights need actors. They need a stage to give, to make visible what it is that they've been creating in their heads. And so we do need a national theatre. But, but the gate, the gate, the gate, the, the gate board gosh theatre, all me, these things. The gate, I don't mind a few capital quid going in to start up, but to get an, on subsidy of 300 grand every year. And this is on top of the orchestra's 15 million. 
and the army number one band I have to and look, the Garda I'm pipe so band. Incre- and the, the, I'm so yeah. incredulous that, that it's laughable that you would take that stance because uh, it's always been the case that uh, Philistines look down on the arts and don't fully appreciate no, I'm, I'm what happy. it is. I'm proud Philistine. Uh, Terry, help me out here. Well, I never thought that I would get to this position having been a member of the Abbey Theatre Company. When I was 16, I became a member of the Rep Company. And at the time, it was like being assumed into heaven because there were great actors around like Angela Newman, just wonderful, wonderful actors. But there isn't a rep company there anymore. And if you look at the current... What's a rep company? A rep company means that there's a bunch of actors who are on staff and who are available to play Shakespeare, to play O'Casey, to play anything that The kind of civil servants of acting. Civil servants of acting, absolutely. Uh, Whereas now, I think, Bill, you were saying that the the current production in the Abbey has one Irish player. None of them are... layers of bureaucracy in acting. But, no, now listen to what I'm actually saying, Ivan, as opposed to what you would like me to be saying. Um, I would prefer to have a state theatre, a national theatre, than to have the Volvo theatre or the Volkswagen theatre because I think... Oh, you're so snobby now you can't take sponsorship. It's not a question of being snobby. It's a question of saying what actually works. I believe that in the early days of the Abbey, the days of OKC, Um, then there was a sense of excitement, of development, of fostering new people. Then after about 20 years, if you watch, you will see a lot of pot-boiling stuff coming in because everything that is state-sponsored eventually goes safe. And so I would not be... But now you've gone too far, Terry. You've insulted every sports fan. I can go to Lansdowne Road and it's called the Aviva Stadium. And you're so snobby that you won't have it, the Volvo this or the Board Gash uh-huh. Theatre. You, you won't even take corporate money. That's a smokescreen, Ivan. Oh, right. <laughs> That's a smokescreen. <laughs> Maraid. Yeah, I, I'm caught on this one, right? I like going to the gaiety. I like being entertained. I've been, uh, go, I've gone to different stuff at the, in the Abbey and I've always kind of come away thinking it's geared for the Americans and for the tourists and something to do on a night. When they're very elitist, very nonsense, both ways. Very snobby. I had a real Sean O'Casey moment there uh, a few years back. My my youngest fella was um, in Dublin doing the transition year, and I decided, right, you are going to go to live theatre, and we're going to do this, you know, at least you know once every two weeks or so. So I hauled him down to the Abbey to see something, and of course, you know, he's bored out of his tree, but came along, and we were waiting at the Lewis stop afterwards to go back to get the car. What was and the play? I can't even recall what it was. Well, I'm sure it's one of those boring. But anyway, but what I yeah, will not, uh, will I, which, which, what I will always remember is that as we're waiting in the Lewis and Abbey Street, two ladies who, you know, ply a certain trade were having a very deep discussion about their different charges for the different services they rented. Okay. And the free I market, yeah. It was the free market. And um, my young lad got an absolute education that evening in terms of all of that. And that's what I remember about the Abbey play. Uh, that Sean O'Casey yes. moment. I, I you got street think that this is fair. Okay. I just don't think this is fair. I think that uh, especially when you have a great production, like, for example, the first production of Borstal Boy, um, it was so beautiful that the actors themselves used to go up to the light box 
to watch the end soliloquy. It would move your heart and the Americans who were there on coach tours. And I'm not sure that that happens to the same extent but anymore. They were mesmerised and responsive to the pure beauty of it. Some of the greatest moments I've had in the theatre have been in the Abbey. And one of them was last Friday night. I went to Come From Away this very controversial production that doesn't have Irish people in it. But it's moving to the West End. It's moving to the Phoenix Theatre in the West End. It's going to run for a year. Do you support the petition to uh, Josepha Madigan? Absolutely. And you look at who has signed it and you realise these are artists you respect. It's a bit like the whole Brexit thing earlier that you look, whose club do you want to be in? The clowns, Boris Johnson or Nigel Farage or do you want to be with the people who are against it? And in this instance... I want to be in the but club. But Bill, I, I, the fact that you three can get pleasure from the theatre excites me and delights me and all the rest of it. But asking someone uh, who, who, who's looking for social housing or looking for a hospital bed or looking for essential public services that yes. only the government provide is just is just not reasonable That's in this day reductive in utilitarian or whatever you, know, you call it. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, why can't they? Practical. I mean, I know it, you know, they're getting half the budget for theatre. The Abbey Theatre collects half the government budget for theatre. 300,000 is only the tip of the iceberg. There's something like, is it 20 million for redevelopment and under the Project Ireland there's supposed to be 80 million going to the, um, to the Abbey. Why, why can't they pay them on results in a way? You know, if there's a why row... Why don't they pay their way? Yeah, but if there's a row over them not, um, you know, hiring Irish, act, hiring Irish actors or, you know, training new directors or producers or, you know... Final word of in dismissal. In the world of industry and business, yes. we have no problem asking the state for R&D money. Because we know that if we get it, we can get scientists who are geniuses who will create businesses that will employ a whole load of people. Investing in a national theatre is the same proposition. It allows genius to come through. It attracts overseas business in the form of tourists. And it is infinitely rewarding to our sense of selves as a nation. So the message from my panel tonight, as we conclude this oration uh, from in support of the National Theatre, if you're a taxpayer driving home, you've got to uh, driving home, you've got to cough up and yeah. keep paying. My sincere thanks to uh, my august uh, and I'd say arty panel, uh, Bill Hughes, producer, Mind the Gap Films, Terry Prone, chair of the Communication Clinic, Emma Raid Lavery, a Lavery journalist with the Farmers Journal, editor of the Country Living. Thank you all for putting up with me, and that's your lot from the hard shoulder this week you can all say not a minute too soon uh, my thanks to the production team Mark Simpson Ashling Moore Dan Flanagan Kira Courtney Elaine Power Rona Dowley and Steve Daunt and thanks to uh, Michael Quilligan and Peter on Malloy on Sound Off the Ball is up next I'll be back on Monday with another week of the hard shoulder from 4pm have a great weekend and thanks for listening 